Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff. I think this is like the 10th time I've tried to record this intro because there's just not enough time or enough ways for me to jam in all that Charlie Angle is in this one minute before the episode. So I'll just tell you this. The fact that there isn't already a movie based on Charlie Engel's life came as a real big surprise to me once I finished up my conversation with him. He's got 30 years of sobriety, but the dude has an amazing story. Part of it was chronicled when he ran across the Sahara Desert in a documentary that was produced and narrated by Matt Damon. Another part of it, uh, he chronicled himself in his book, Running Man. He's going to be running for 30 hours to celebrate his 30 years of recovery uh, in an event that is connected to Ashley Addiction Treatment. Charlie Engel is the man, and we got about an hour with him. We didn't get 30 hours, but man, did we pack a lot into this 60 minutes. Before we get to Charlie, you know the drill. Kevin Souza. While what you're about to see is true, this story begins at the movies. Here's Harry Smith. Charlie Engel is one of the top ultra marathoners in the world. He loves the freedom that comes from putting one foot in front of the other and seeing just how far he can go. What's happening, Pete? Hey, Charlie, what's up, man? Man, you know, just living the dream here. I feel like I, I feel like I know you very well by now because yeah, <laughs> you you remind me a, yeah. a lot of myself, but but uh, but you're you're accomplished. I'm I've always been a runner since uh, since 18 years old, uh, and huge uh, speed guy, alcohol guy. I always yeah. I always ran no matter what, and I always felt like that was an out for me, uh, almost like mm -hmm. okay a justification to keep going. And hearing you talk about that, it's not, it's not too frequently that I run into other people uh, in recovery that, that, I mean, every day I would run, I mean, regardless of what happened the night before, until, unless I was still up and, st and sometimes I still did. Yeah, no, dude, you, you nailed it right there. And, and that is when I'm, when people ask the right question, which you just did, you know, I will answer this in front of 10,000 people in a, in a stadium even. And that is that I freely admit that my running was a combination of um, health and wellness and, and trying to sort of purge last night's, you know, binge out of my body or the last week's binge or the last month's binge and, you know, trying to like, to me, it was the best way to uh, push a lot of those poisons out of my body. But there was also a part that was about, you know, self-flagellation, you know, about being, about punishing myself because I knew how to make myself hurt through running. And, you know, and I felt like I deserved it. So early on in my recovery, you know, I, I looking back now, I freely understand uh, that I used running as a, you know, both as a, a tool and as a, almost a weapon against myself, a, a punishment of sorts. And it, you know, it took a lot of, it took a lot of working through it. I think what I tried to do, Pete, in those first three years, because when I first got sober, you know, I, I, I ran every single day for three straight years. I also went to a, a recovery meeting every day for three years. So I did those two things without missing a single day. Cause I, I kind of felt like my life depended on it, but I, I was trying to like beat the addict out of me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I thought that guy's trying to kill me. So I'm going to kill him first. And it took those three years for me to understand that I, I, I was wrong about that because the addict and my addictive nature, and I don't want to speak for you, but I'm going to guess that you feel the same those qualities are actually all the best parts of me. I mean, those are the, those are the parts that make me good at stuff. Like without that 
obsessive part of my personality, I, I probably wouldn't be good at anything today. So what, what mattered was to finally, you know, stop the putting drinking and, and putting alcohol and drugs into my system and instead directing that addictive, obsessive nature towards positive things. Yeah, I think and I think the running or, or, or working out, I think that can get a bad rap sometimes because I, I always felt like for me early in recovery, because people say you trade one for the other. Early on, I felt like it really helped me. Uh, like I wouldn't, and, and I would, and I would die on that hill, uh, you know, working well, did, out. Did and, you ever, yeah. did you ever, yeah, did you ever pawn your computer to enter a race? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> did you yeah. ever, right. Did you ever sell your car, you know, to, to like go on an expedition? You know, I mean, it's just, a, it's a ridiculous, um, okay. I'm not saying that there's not somebody out there that, that is so, and I'm using air quotes that you can't see uh, addicted to exercise that they can do harm. But I got to tell you, man, that is like, that is such a thin argument. And it usually comes from people in your inner circle or even your slightly edge circle in your life. And one of the things that I've said now for years, and I, I genuinely believe that it's true, even the people closest to us sometimes don't want to see us succeed. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I'm not saying they don't love us, and they, they, they've watched us with this painful behavior probably for years, but there's weird comfort in having a person that you can rely on their bad behavior and when that bad behavior goes away, very often it changes the dynamic of the relationship. If it's a marriage, if it's a, just a friendship, if that's your drinking buddy and you're no longer drinking, well, I had friends who would tell me like, hey, man, you don't need to quit. You just need to slow down. And I'm like, what the f Are you kidding me? After, after eight days me? straight of being awake. Right. Have you been watching me? I mean, if I could slow down, don't you think I would? And it took me years to realize those people, it's like they had a rope around my waist and they were just trying to pull me back to them. And that's because they were afraid of what my getting better might make them feel like. You know what I mean? Because we, it's a weird human nature thing. Well, it's in, it's in our literature. I mean, I, I, it's in the twelve-step literature. You know, it's like the family yeah. afterwards. It, it literally is textbook. Yeah. There's, there's a, yep. there's, a, there's a kind of a solution for it, but it's, it's very real. I want to jump back with you and get to, get into the, the evolution of your, of your person and, uh, and, and your addiction. It seems like they were one and the same. Uh, you grew up in North Carolina. Your father. Or your grandfather was a track coach at North Carolina, like a legendary coach? Totally. He was the best ever at UNC and Chapel Hill. And he was an All-American as a runner in the 20s and then became the head track and cross-country coach for about 40 years. Did you feel you were kind of predestined to run? Well, <laughs> in the legacy standpoint, yes. Yeah. You know, my, my family, unfortunately, he died. My grandfather died when I was very young, and so I didn't really know him. But, you know, the family would always say, oh, man, you're going to be a runner just like your granddad. And and I will say that, that that stuck with me. And it turned out I wasn't a particularly talented runner. You know, I mean, I was never going to, you know, I ran – whatever, 4.30 for the mile. And I ran, you know, I ran some fast 5Ks and some even decent marathons once I got sober. But, you know, you tell the average person you broke three hours in a marathon, they're like, wow, that's that's unbelievable. And then you, you realize that, you know, the Boston Marathon winner is always, you know, 205. Like there's the distance between me and that guy are uh, from here to the moon. So, uh, I was not an elite runner ever, but, you know, but I found my, my comfort zone in super long distance. You found, you also found alcohol kind of early on. You grew up, your parents were 19 when they had you. So you grew up in a, I would guess maybe like a, like a hippie-ish environment, like a bohemian environment I've heard you describe. What was that like? Yeah, it was, you know what, as a kid, it was phenomenal. <laughs> I was the... Now, I was always a weird kid. I, I probably still am today, but, you know, my 
my mom was in school in Chapel Hill, and then she went to the University of Georgia, and then she went to Albany, Georgia, and then she started teaching in prisons. Like I, I, I moved to Attica, New York, where she taught, you know, acting and writing in Attica State Prison. So I was like always this kid with long hair parted down the middle. I looked like a, a reasonably cute little girl. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and, and so this weird, as, a, as an only child, this sort of weird adult world that I occupied taught me how to, um, it taught me how to speak to adults. It taught me how to uh, engage. Uh, you know, we didn't have phones, obviously, back then in the early 60s. So it was, you know, you were, you were able to carry a conversation even as a little kid. You know, but it also taught me, you know, to drink. You know, I grew up in a household where it wasn't unusual to open the fridge and there's nothing in there but, you know, beer and wine. And, uh, I, you know, I thought the smell of pot was like, um, you know, some sort of incense we were burning in the house because it just always smelled that way. <laughs> and what did alcohol do for you? Well, so there's a story I actually tell in the book that in my and Running Man that uh, you know I'm walking around a, a, a typical late night party at our house out in the country in Durham, North Carolina, and there's you know there's 50 people dancing uh, in the front yard because the speakers are in the window, and you know they're all you know they're 22, 23, 24 years old. So just you know think about uh, you know I think about myself at that age. Yeah. And, I'm a little kid wandering around the house and, and it's not like, you know, I don't want it to say, I, I like to say that I was lovingly, lovingly neglected is how I look at it. I'm not trying to excuse my mother or the fact that I wasn't particularly well cared for, but you know, that particular night there was nothing to drink uh, in the fridge. And so, you know, that was, I was probably nine or 10 years old and I picked up a beer, uh, that was half full, you know, on the table and I, I smelled it. And of course it smelled terrible and it tasted even worse, but I drank it. I was thirsty and I drank that half beer and I immediately felt this, you know, warmth mm. that we, many of us describe, you know, this comfort and, as I like to say, you know, alcohol like planted a flag in my brain on that night and like claimed that territory for itself. And, and it was an impactful night. It's not like I started drinking every day after that. I mean, I know that happens to some people. It's not what happened to me, but I, I knew I always had something to turn to. That's you what could that count on it. Taught me. Totally. totally. Yeah. That was never going to let me down when I needed it. It was going to be there. And I couldn't point to anything else in my life that made me feel that way. Uh, the book, by the way, is Running Man, a memoir of ultra endurance. It's like on and off the trails. People got to check it out. Um, and we'll kind of talk a little bit, almost like a Cliff's Notes version of that, because your story is amazing. Are, are you 30 years sober at this point? Yeah, so coming up, I'm uh, July 23rd, assuming I don't I don't relapse between now and then. Uh I will have 30 years of, you know, continuous sobriety, which is, uh, if you knew me back then, is a freaking miracle. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it has. It's been a long journey. And, and I, I appreciate you mentioning the book. You know, it's, despite the name Running Man, it actually has very little to do with running, yeah. I'm happy to say. There's a lot better runners out there. If, you wanna, if you're looking for a marathon training plan, my book will tell you why you should do it, but it's not going to teach you a damn thing about how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it'll teach you about endurance, though, and, it'll, and, 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 and life and kind of moving forward. I've heard you talk about kind of hitting a wall. Um, and I'm, I'm jumping forward here, but when, you, when you're running the Sahara Desert and, and you hit a wall uh, and, and you learn – you know, I, I love when you say people when they're running, you know, you talk about hitting a wall, right, in a marathon. And uh, you said that they think they're going to feel like that for the rest of eternity, right? Whatever they're feeling at that moment when they hit the, and like, you know, I'll take your 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 note uh, with the air clothes I'm doing right now. But they hit that wall and it's not true. They're not going to feel like that forever. And it's very similar with sobriety. You know, you hit that wall like 
I don't know, in your first month or so and you're like, oh my God, I can't do this. And you break through it and you're okay. Yeah, it's surviving moments. You know, I, I, I think that is the, it's so much the key to even, I would even argue, happiness. And uh, the place I, I really talk about it is if you have a super emotional, you know, I'm still an emotional guy and I occasionally will pick a fight with my wife and we'll have you almost always my fault, but some... <laughs> Welcome to the human know, race, dude. Yeah, yeah, right. Some terrible argument where I say a handful of things that I don't mean and I, you know, have to apologize for and, and all of that. But the, the point is that horrible moment that there's not a single person listening to this right now that, ha I mean, if you've managed to go without having that kind of argument with somebody else your whole life, then I don't even know what to say about that. You know, you're not, you're not real. Um, taking that moment in a relationship that's really important to you. And we project that out forever. We think we've destroyed everything that that relationship could possibly be in the future because of how badly we feel in that moment. And it's just not true. So it's about learning how to let those moments slide by without making them worse. That's always my goal is I've already, you know, I may have already made a mistake. I'll make another, you know, analogy in a marathon because that's super simple. You know, I go the first 20 miles without drinking anything in a marathon. Now, I would never do that. But if I did, you know, I'm <laughs> I know what's going to happen. Yeah. Like I am going to hit that wall and I'm going to, you know, I, I know not to make it worse by by going the last six miles without drinking. I know I need to take a drink. I need to slow down. I need to, I need to let perspective come back into the picture and if I let that terrible hard moment slide by now it may take my pain level from a, a 10 to an 8 but as we all know from really serious emotional and physical pain you know when you drop to an 8 it feels like the world has been lifted off your shoulders um, there's still a lot to deal with but I, I, I think it's this idea of Resilience is all the big buzzword these days. I get I get hired and asked to go to places and talk about resilience. I've, I've spoken at the United Nations and NATO headquarters in Belgium and some crazy places where resilience has been the key. And even in those places, everybody's kind of looking for a hack. Yeah. <laughs> they want they want some shortcut <laughs> to resilience. Yeah, and I'm like. That's the whole, the whole purpose is, you, you know, there is no other way to resilience except to endure. You have, you know, endurance is the only way, it's the only path to resilience. And so figuring out a way to flip that thing in your brain that, that makes you think that you've destroyed something. Instead, what you've actually done is open, you know, a door to discovery. And if you can look at it as a, a positive, even in a terrible moment, then it can turn into one of those those life lessons that sticks with you forever. You can build on it. Yeah, you can build on it because I mean, you can't build on. I mean, you ask somebody what their what's formative in their life, like who has what has made you who you are. Nobody says, "Oh, well, you know, I made A's in eighth grade." Like, it's not, we don't go, our brain doesn't go to the positive things. The formative yeah. things are, are the struggles. That's what makes us who we are, is, is the struggles themselves and how we've responded to them. And, you know, we uh, humans are built kind of to try to somehow avoid pain. And, and I'm fond of saying that not only is it unavoidable, it's actually, you know, it's destructive to try to avoid it. Because avoiding pain doesn't teach you anything. And, you, and there will come a time where the pain is unavoidable. And if you haven't been there before, you don't know how to handle it. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of your pain, as we jump back, uh, just like myself, right? It's kind of like early on, whether we're predisposed, uh, you know, predisposed as alcoholics or addicts, you go to North Carolina. You're, you're on campus there in 1980. You go there. You, you get an invite to walk on the football team, and mm -hmm. you show up on campus, that's got to be an exciting deal. It's an exciting time. Uh, North Carolina's awesome. You know, I've been there. You're hanging out on, on Franklin Street having a good time. What what happens when you arrive on campus? Well, because, you know, I mean, obviously, Pete, I am the man. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
you know, the whole campus is going to be so excited that I'm there. Like their their college experience can begin now. Now <laughs> that Charlie Engel has arrived on campus, like everything's going to change. And you know, I mean, in high school, uh, you know, I was student body president, and I made good grades, and I played a lot of sports, and dated the occasional cheerleader, and like I was, you know, and, You're and the I'm guy. like, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy to say I think I was well liked, and and you know there's some things I'm proud of as a predominantly black high school, and I was like the first white student body president, so I was, you know, I was happy with who I was. Well, I go to Carolina, and like I'm being funny, tongue in cheek, when I say I thought there might be a banner on the dorm like "Welcome Charlie," but I know what you mean. Um, yeah, but a week into it, I'm like, Jesus, I am so freaking average. Like I was. I was just incredibly average. <laughs> like, you know, I wasn't anywhere close to the smartest person. I certainly was just an average athlete. Um, you know, I, I went and observed a couple of football practices before I walk-ons were invited. You know, these were, you know, closed practices, but I could go watch. But I think the purpose of going to watch them was to give a dose of reality. And I'm like, hell no. <laughs> I am not... I'm not getting out. You know, I was still six feet, you know, 180 pounds. And I mean, I was a slow footed quarterback and a, and a decent kicker. And I don't know what they thought they might do with me, but it was very clear that that wasn't going to happen. So, <laughs> um, what I figured out really fast Pete, was that I was the drinking age was still 18. And as you know, the universe clearly ordained me as, uh, special because I turned 18, you know, the first couple of weeks of my freshman year in college. And I figured out in very, very short order that I was uh, an all-American first team drinker. I could just drink more than anybody else, period. Uh, and that became very, very quickly, that became my identity. I mean, it's, it was years It was years later after I left college that I realized backgammon wasn't actually just a drinking game. <laughs> because, like, that's all it was good for in my dorm was, was drinking. And, uh, and, dude, you, you know, in the... Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, no, I just wanted to say, you know, you're, you're, it's 19, it's early 80s. You're on a big college campus. I got to imagine cocaine is all over the place. Yeah, I was getting, you, you, you beat me to the punch. I was going to say, and it was the cocaine decade. You know, I mean, coke is still around, of course, and, and a problem and a big deal and whatever. But then I, I am not kidding you. I didn't realize it was, I don't want to say I didn't realize it was illegal, but it was so ubiquitous on campus, like maybe the way weed is, you know, at campuses uh -huh. today. And, that it just didn't even occur to me that, like, you know, that it was illegal. I mean, I joined a fraternity, of course, because that's gonna that's gonna help me with my drinking. Yeah. And uh, you know, and my coke use. And I figured out that you did play. You, know, you played JV hoops, though. I did. Yeah. So I, I did, and the audacity that I had uh, to actually go out for the the JV basketball. I mean, technically. This is the cool thing. At Carolina, you're technically going out for the basketball team. You're not necessarily going out for the JV team. Like, you're going out for the team. Yeah. I mean, one in a million guys, about once every 10 years, somebody moves up from JV to the varsity. Um, so it's a rare occurrence. But So I made the team, but I made the JV team, of course. And But it was at a time that, you know, Roy Williams was the fourth coach on the bench. And so he was the JV coach. So not a bad, not yeah. a bad guy to be coached by. Um, after a year of that, I realized that, you know, I certainly was never going to make varsity as a player, but I did have a fraternity brother who had made varsity as a, as a uh, manager. Um, weirdly, my uncle, so I have more history here. You know, my, yeah. my, my dad's brother played basketball at Carolina and he played for, uh, coach Frank McGuire before yeah. Dean Smith started coaching. And then he ended up being a manager for Dean Smith. And my dad actually played on Dean's very first freshman team when he became coach. So, you know, basketball was in my, yeah. was in my blood. And you're also kind of in a weird but, way, a legacy around there because people kind of know. No the name. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And so, 
you know, it was it was cool, and I I got to be part of this JV program, but I knew I wasn't going to make it as a player, so I tried as a manager, and 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 you know, and I so I was a manager. I was How'd you handle year, that responsibility? I mean, that's that's not an easy yeah. uh, that's not an easy job. You're you're like the first person there and the last one to leave. You're rolling yeah. the, you're rolling the balls out as a manager. What? Here's the funny part, and they were I mean, Carolina is so smart about this. I'm sure other programs are too. You know, there would be. There were four JV managers, and the four of us are still close friends today, all four of us, because we were in the trenches together. We all knew that probably only one of us was going to get chosen as a varsity manager. So there was an inherent competition going all the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just built into it. And, I mean, unfortunately, you can get what got in the way for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was – it became pretty hard when, you know, people would – Carolina's a big campus, but it ain't that big. And, you know, people would know what you're doing, and they'd know your business. And I know Coach Williams eventually found out that I was having some struggles. And I, I basically just, you know, I shot myself in the foot for having any chance of being chosen as varsity manager. But the, I will say this, Pete, though, I showed up. I mean, I did – well, that's kind you of in your DNA. Lines. That that's kind of that, in your story. Yeah. We 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 yeah. keep seeing that. Uh, you've you you've yeah, always you that. always had that gear. Even you, so, you know, you're doing coke and you're showing up. Um, either way, you know, you're 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 actually doing a hard job. What what happens to you? I was, I was more determined, hungover than most people were sober. So. <laughs> <laughs> See, what happens? What what the hell happens to you? You you kind of your usage evolves. You're 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 snorting coke and then you're smoking crack how, how does that happen yeah well you know and the evolution is needless to say three years into my college career second semester junior year i didn't go to a single class and it's very weird how universities will actually kick you out if you don't <laughs> go to class i did not understand that but you know so they very very politely asked me to leave and I mean, and in fact, my father, a fraternity brother called my father and said, hey, and that was, I was still great friends with that guy who made that phone call. He lives right here in North Carolina, close to me. And, uh, you know, he made the call, the hardest call that you could possibly make, oh, I think, yeah. to, to my dad to say, hey, you know, your son's in trouble. Yeah, that's and, just you know, a shitload of integrity at that age. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and of course, I was both pissed and relieved uh -huh. all at the same time. I mean, I knew how badly I was screwing up. So my dad comes and gets me. He's living in Seattle at this point. Um, and he and comes, he comes to North Carolina? Goes, Jesus. Yeah, he comes grab. and he packs my kid up and <laughs> yeah. takes me back out to, you know, takes me back out there. And, and uh, dude, I'm not kidding you. I get a job. He, he decides he's going to buy a franchise of some type like in the fast food industry. And so I get a job as an assistant manager at a Wendy's. So I go from Chapel Hill <laughs> to being an assistant manager at Wendy's. And what I did was start this pattern that a lot of addicts will relate to. Uh, for about 10 years, I basically would go somewhere. I would kick some ass for six months. Yes. Right? Uh -huh. Whatever the job is, I am the man. And then, and then the fucking fastest. Charlie shows up. Right. <laughs> exactly. And then yeah. I'm like, okay, I got this. I can have a beer. Yeah. And it's not like I wasn't having the occasional beer, but I would finally reach that point where I was ready to blow off some steam. And I spend the next six months losing the job, losing the apartment, losing the girlfriend. And I would move and I moved to Atlanta and I moved to New York and I moved to LA and I moved, you know, I just, I did a geographical change every one to two years for 10 years. And and again, I mean, I went to California, and I'm the, I'm, uh, I sold Toyotas, and I was the number one Toyota salesman in the country for a couple of years. And that's a lot of cars. I mean, I'm selling six or 700 cars a year for a couple of years in a row wow. and making a lot of money, which I'm snorting off the back of the toilet and the employee bathroom, you know, and, you know, I'm just, that's just the life I'm, I'm living. And I went to rehab. You know, 25 years old, I go to rehab started going to AA meetings early on and I couldn't understand AA meetings because I went to AA um, because I had heard that you could learn to control your drinking in AA. And so to me, what that meant was because at this point drinking was really screwing up my drug use. 
Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I went to I went to AA trying to get a handle on this thing, not not trying to stop. We'll get back to this conversation in a second, but right now, a word from our sponsors. The world looks different behind the handlebars of a rad electric bike. Grabbing takeout looks less like greasy styrofoam boxes and more like a cross-town adventure. Ride shares look less like piling into the back of a car and more like grabbing fresh air with your friends. And commuting can even start to look like the best part of your day. That's because with Rad, the world is what you make of it, not what it makes of you. See for yourself with a 14-day free trial. Find your fun at radpowerbikes.com. The all-new Chevy Colorado is made for more. Stacked with the latest in-vehicle technologies like a class-leading 11-inch diagonal center touchscreen and an extra-large wireless charging pad. Plus, it features wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto compatibility to make staying connected easy wherever your adventure takes you. Chevy Colorado. Made for more. Learn more at Chevrolet.com slash truck slash Colorado. Claims based on latest competitive data. And, uh, at that point I in time, when you go things. when you go to rehab at twenty five, are you, are you smoking crack at that point? Has it evolved? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I'm smoking crack, and then and I stay sober for six months, and then I go completely off the rails. I mean, I'm the best sober person you've ever seen. You know, I yeah. I you know, of course, I set a record for completing the twelve steps because I'm uh, a genius and. You know, and I overachieve all the way through. I went through three sponsors because, of course, um, you know, they just didn't know how to handle me. And as it turns out, you know, as we both know, this is a volunteer program. And, and when you're dealing with a pain in the ass sponsee, there comes a point where you're just saying, all right, man, you go do your thing. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> I can't, I, I'm, this is not worth it. This is not what I signed up for. So, you know, so I try all these things. I mean, I, I, I would like to say that I, I went to church, I saw a shaman, I went to rehab and, and, you know, and, you know, none of those things worked for me, of course, because I wasn't ready. I love, uh, and, and you're, you're married at the time to your first wife. Yeah. And right. I, I've heard you, and this is, this is in your book. Um, you, 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 it's a great way to, to go inside your relationship and the madness of your life. When you tell the story about how you go out, you, your father-in-law's in town for a week and, and you're hanging for like five or six days and you're kind of like, you like the guy, right? Horace is his name and you want to keep, keep it in the yeah. fairway. And then what happens that last night? Dude, that's so crazy. Like, I'm not kidding. I, I know I wrote this book and I did write every word, but I haven't even thought about that story for a couple of years. I don't know why. It's so fun that you, that you picked that because it gave me goosebumps. Horace was a great guy and he, you know, he was an alcoholic in his life and it was a medical thing like, you know, a heart problem that finally forced him to stop drinking. So, but he knew, he knew what it was like to be an alcoholic. And of course, my wife knew what it was like to live with one because she had grown up with one in the house. So she was used to my craziness, my brand of craziness. And, ima and imagine so, that, right? She ends up finding you after yeah, growing up shocking. in that. Yeah, yeah. Shocking. And so, yeah, so I kept it together for, you know, almost all the way up to that last night. And we went to this fancy steakhouse in Monterey, California, where we're living. And I mean, it was going to be our final celebration. And I, of course, scored some Coke that afternoon, but I wasn't going to touch it. I knew better. <laughs> And of course I had just a little. And so, you know, I've got this $40 beautiful steak in front of me. You know, I don't eat meat anymore, but in those days I sure did. And I had this great steak and beautiful meal in front of me and I couldn't eat it. Like I couldn't eat, I, I was forcing it down and I'd go into the bathroom and do another line. And I sort of think I'm keeping it together and we get back to the house and you know, luckily my wife's exhausted and her dad goes to bed and I go to bed, pretend to go to sleep. And of course I slip out the door <laughs> as soon as I think everybody's, you know, asleep and I'm, I'm going to get, you know, I don't know if you ever did this, but like, oh, uh, I, yeah. I am going, I'm going to get back by three o'clock. I'm going to get back by four o'clock in the morning. I'm going to get back by five. Like, 
over and over. And I, I slip out to some, I don't even, I think I went to a bowling alley that was open all night and all the best people hung out there. <laughs> and, and like, you know, and, and of course, by the time I finally dragged myself back to the house, it's, you know, it's 6 a.m. and I go into the garage because we have a detached garage at the house. And, I can see there's a light on in the kitchen and I'm thinking, Oh man, they're, they're awake. Or my father-in-law's awake. I literally, I get naked. I change into running clothes that are there at the washer dryer. And I put <laughs> these running clothes on and I spray myself. Like I splash my face and my hair with water. And like, you know, I run, I jog in place and I run into the kitchen. I open the door and I'm like, <laughs> Man, had a had a great run, and they're both, they're both just looking at me like, "Yeah, we've been up since four. And, <laughs> and, and your, your wife had told her dad everything. Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm standing there in the kitchen with my running shorts and and water from the sink dripping off of me like sweat, just the biggest jerk in the entire world, and. You know, and he was incredibly understanding, and we took him to the airport. But it was, you know, in the in the in uh, out of all the humiliating things I did, I think that was well. It's up there, right? And that's just that's, like that's just like me. 10. Yeah, exactly. There's probably 50 other, um, which yeah. is kind of for people that are listening to this that that aren't addicts. And, and the best part is, dude, we can laugh about it now because you're sober, and and that's how we stay sober to a degree with yeah. one another. We're vulnerable. We're talking about it. Um, it's relatable because the Charlie Angle running through the Sahara um, at 15 years sober may not be relatable for for people, but but that is, you know, and yeah. uh, and sharing those stories is so important. So I I appreciate you sharing you sharing that one because it just it's a real microcosm and a look into into the shit we do. I mean that's that's one of like 40 times that that probably happened. Yeah, it was crazy and funny. I mean, it should be a Saturday Night Live skit. Or I, I'm, I'm actually thrilled that you told that, that you reminded me of that because I, I have an upcoming, you know, event uh, outing where I have to, I tell my normal story that I've gotten used to telling, and I, and I, I don't dig into some of the fun stories like that, and and I'm gonna, I'm gonna break that one back out. And, and I think some of that is because in front of people and you, you're, you're doing it right now and, and on your show where I share the struggle too often you listen to people and I'm not being critical of other yeah. sober people, but it's, it's so deeply steeped in either the deepest debauchery um, and the drug use part of it, or it's all about, you know, how incredibly successful they are today. And I, and I'm, you know, I relate to both of those things to a certain degree, but man, it's the struggle that people relate to. And I'd rather dump all my shit out on stage and let people pick through it however they want to, just like in the book. And, you know, let them figure out what they relate to instead of me telling them. Well, it's, that att it's a, the attraction, right? It's a, attraction, not promotion. And that's attractive when totally. people just throw, lay it out there. So... Your your story is amazing. Again, people can can get the book, but you you finally come to that point. You have a son, uh, and then the light starts to flicker, I guess. Um, and, and then a couple months after, you know, you go on another huge binge. But that is what leads you to get sober. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Well, the birth of my son. You know, I I I was counting on him to basically save me, and yeah. you know. And I, I'm not the first to think that way. You know, I, I thought, surely I can stay sober for him. And I felt love from him and for him that as an addict, I, I just didn't think I was capable or deserving of. And so, like, I was determined, man. And, you know, he and my wife come visit me, and I'm in Wichita, Kansas on a job. I have my own business and, you know, certain things. You know, my attitude was always this, if, if you can buy a house back in my 20s, like, if I can buy a house, surely I can't be an addict. Yeah. If I can find somebody to marry me, I can't be an addict. If I can find a, if I can have a kid, I can't be an addict. Like, I did all these things to, to sort of just, you know, prove That was that kind of my dad's, and, like, family's mentality. Like, if you've got a job, because there was alcoholism all over the place, but if you've got a job, you know, you can kind yeah. of, you, you can, you can fend can off the posse, yeah. Right. How bad can it be? Well, so in this case, you know, I, that's the way I lived my life. And, and 
I had this business and I chased hailstorms around the country. It was really weird. It was perfect because I made a lot of money and I could run my own time. You'd fix so cars could, after hailstorms. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. yep, I could drink and I could party and I could do all this stuff. And so I'm in Wichita, but I'm behaving myself because I've got the son and, and my wife and son come out and visit for a week. And like, it's literally to this day, you know, one of the best weeks of my life. Like I've got this little baby and, and it's just a magical week. And I've dropped them at the airport, kissed them goodbye. And it's incredible. And I dropped 20 minutes later, I'm smoking crack in the worst neighborhood in town <laughs> and nothing, nothing happened. Like there was no, there was no, or there's no trigger as we might think of it. You know, I didn't get fired. I didn't lose a job. Nobody stole money. Like we didn't have an argument. I didn't have anything to like put this binge on. I just simply drove straight to the neighborhood where I knew to go. And I started smoking crack and I did it for six straight days and without even popping my head out of the room practically. And, um, you know, and that six day binge ended up with me handcuffed on the ground and the police searching my car and bullet holes in the car. And, uh, you know, and I'd love to say that's the first time that that had ever happened. It's, it's not. But the, the most important piece of it was I did have this very clear thought, you know, just uh, echoing through my head. Nobody's coming to save you, you know, and, and it was the most mm. useful thought I'd ever had. It's like my, my baby son can't save me. My, uh, my wife certainly couldn't. None of the bosses I ever had, you know, could save me. And, and I, everybody's willing to help as soon as I was finally willing to commit to something, to a program of recovery. And, you know, I went to an AA meeting that night and uh, it's the first one I ever went to. I'd been to dozens before then, but it's the first one I ever went to with a, an open heart and a curious mind. And I sat there and listened and, and I got up the next day and I went for a run and I decided I would do those two things for 30 days. And then I decided I'd keep going for 90 days. And at 90 days, I couldn't, you know, there was no reason to quit. And I felt like my life was getting better. And so I ended up doing those things for three years and, you know, slowly began to build a life for myself. What did you find in, 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 in recovery that, that, that kept you coming back? I found honesty. I found fellowship, you know, and, and I'm just going to say this after almost 30 years sober, you know, I, I've had a million discussions about AA and about 12 step recovery. And, you know, what I can say is sure there's, there's dogma, there's things that maybe I don't relate to, but my first, you know, sponsor was the first guy to say to me, you know, take what you can use and leave the rest. That's what you just said and kind I'm of about your talks. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I'll always just leave it at that. You know, I don't, that, you know, the guy who's saying the same thing you've heard him say 25 times in the same meeting <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, if I have to hear this guy say this one more time, yeah, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to like throw something, um, you know, it's learning how to set those things aside and find the nuggets, find the, find the beauty and the useful things in the meetings and, you know, having a having a human being actually care when whether you show up or not somewhere is a huge thing. And so I, I tell people all the time who struggle with like going to AA, I'm like, okay, that's fine. It can be church, it can be your running group, you can join a you know a vegan group, you can quilt. I don't, it doesn't matter. But some you have to care about other people some way, like really care about them, and they have. To care about you and and whether or not you show up and that was the first time in my life because i had you know my middle name should have been a loop up to <laughs> that first 30 years because i i always made sure that you know i sort of floated in and out and nobody ever really knew where i was or what i was doing and i liked it that way as an addict and I had to learn to set that aside and that desire to hide and, and to be visible and allow myself to not only be helped, 
you know, but to help other people. And quite, quite honestly, what I got out of it more than anything is, is, um, John, the first sponsor I had, he was in his seventies when I got sober in Wichita and I was 29 years old at this point. And, you know, he was the first guy to say to me, you know, to keep it, you have to give it away. And he did, he didn't just say it. He, he taught me a funny lesson. I've already told too many stories about the one more short one. So he, and this isn't in the book even, but so <laughs> I'm not kidding. On like day two of John being my sponsor, I said, John, you've been sober for like 40 something years. There's got to be a secret. You're looking for like, a hack, just a, like everybody else, right? right? Yeah, totally. Right. There's got to be a trick to this. What is it? And he is so, he was so smart. He goes, dude, you're absolutely right. He's like, you come to the eight o'clock meeting tonight. You show up at seven thirty, and we're going to sit down and have a chat. And I'm like, oh, this is. I knew it. I knew it. I show up at seven thirty this meeting. I said, okay, John. I said, I'm so excited. Thanks for taking the time. He's like, I'm so glad you're here, Charlie. But before we talk, you see those coffee pots over there? I need. I, I really. This meeting needs five pots of coffee, and my guy didn't show up tonight. Can you just go make those? make the coffee and i'm like yeah no problem i got it so of course it takes me 30 minutes to make five pots of coffee and you know the meeting happens and after the meeting i come up to john he's like yeah you know i gotta i gotta get home dogs need to be fed just come tomorrow at 7 30 and you know we'll talk then and of course you see where this is going already <laughs> <laughs> i end up showing up you know for 30 days straight it's not it only took me like four or five days to catch on because I'm a little slow. Yeah. You know, but, but what he taught me was, and you know something, not a, I'm not kidding when I say not a single person ever thanked me for making the coffee because they didn't know I was making it. People, you know, people show up at two minutes till eight o'clock. Sure. Yeah. Or late. They get yeah, their cup yeah. of coffee. Right. So nobody's thanking me. And it's probably the first thing I ever did in my life that was of service that I didn't expect to be somehow recognized or thanked. And, and what that simple lesson taught me was the, the beauty of giving back without the expectation of either acknowledgement or some sort of financial return or whatever it might be. And, you know, and I understood that that in fact was the hack. And I'm happy to say that almost 30 years later, you know, I, I, when I'm stuck, I look to service and I don't need it in some goody two shoes way, whatever I do. I do some good things. I don't do as much as I feel like I should sometimes, whatever. I'm just a normal human, but I always know that the fastest way for me to get unstuck is to help somebody else get unstuck. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like you always hear it, right? Or, or maybe you, people are hearing it for the first time. It's like, who are you helping? If I'm if I'm walking around complaining, yeah. and, and it's really it's really hard to even wrap my mind around that movement going from self pity to helping somebody. But it's one. It's like you said earlier. If you can find that ability to kind of break through that wall, you can keep doing it, and you understand how purposeful that is and how fulfilling that is, and it can snap you out of those funks where we're not helping anybody if we're walking around all selfed up in this darkness that's like self-imposed. Well, and you know, when you help somebody, especially a, a sober person or somebody who's trying to get sober, I, I'm, I freely admit, man, I see that guy walk through the doors and, and, you know, he's got two days of sobriety. I'm looking at him and I'm like going, shit, I am so glad I'm not that guy. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, it's not about a lack of compassion. I mean, I'm, I'm here to, I'm here to help him. I'll have a talk with him, but I actually need, I desperately need to see that guy because my inner addict that still is alive and well inside me, you know, he's telling me, he's still telling me like my friends did back in the day, you weren't so bad. You weren't that bad. You, you could probably, you know, have a beer or two if you wanted to. Like well, that that's, that connective, that, that's the connective tissue between That's why you go to meetings. Cause you see that guy and it's like, Oh yeah, that, that was yeah. me. All right. So I want to move into, we don't have a ton of time left. So what, yeah. what happens? How do you end up running the Sahara desert for people that don't know? Um, yeah. Running the Sahara. That's, well, that's, a, that's a, that's a, a documentary produced by Matt Damon. I mean, it's, you know, there's so much other stuff. If you check out Charlie's book, I mean, literally he's, you're working, you're working on the, uh, 
What's that show you're working on with Ty Pennington, Extreme Home? Home yeah. I mean, you end Extreme up getting makeover home edition. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're like a key cog in that wheel. That's that. Anybody that remembers that show it was people used to like lose their shit over like that show it was the number one yeah. rated show. So you're working on that, and then you get this bug up your ass about running across the Sahara, or you get this opportunity. Um, I say that tongue in cheek. What happens? Yeah, well, you know, I had, you know, during those first three years of running, I ran like 30 or 35 marathons. And I, I do always make the joke, it's like, clearly I had that whole addiction thing under control. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and I, I was I was running like crazy. But, but I, I found so much comfort and wisdom in voluntary suffering. And I mean, that's what I, that's what I call it. You know, I chose to put myself in hard positions because I understood early on that the more often I could get through that wall we talked about earlier, the more that would translate to stopping me from relapsing or stopping me from doing some other bad, you know, choice. And so, you know, my life got better and I got, I, I had started a couple of businesses. I, I got a call from a, a, a guy who was the creator of Extreme Makeover Home Edition because, you know, we had met in the Borneo jungle on an Eco Challenge show, Mark Burnett's first, uh, you know, I was in the Eco Challenge in Borneo and Mark Burnett was producing. And, you know, anyway, this guy from CBS, he calls me two years later and he's like, look, Charlie, you are completely unqualified for this job. But if you don't tell anybody, you know, I want to hire you to come on the show. And be a producer and a, and I was a cameraman and, and like I got to be creative and talk to people and that at the same time, I'm doing races all over the world and I'm, I'm actually winning a lot of these uh, races that are hundred milers or hundreds of miles across the Gobi desert, uh, Atacama desert. Like I'm doing this stuff all over the place. And I go to the Amazon to do a race and I, and a guy, who was in the race with me um, blurts out this crazy idea. You know, I wonder if anybody's run across the Sahara. And I, I told him it was the dumbest idea I'd ever heard. And, uh, but I got an introduction to a guy named James Mall, who was a director and James loved the idea. And this guy had won the Academy Award for best documentary a couple of years earlier. And uh, he calls Matt Damon. I didn't know he was doing that, but yeah. but James calls me and says, you know, hey, I just hung up with Matt, and he he would like to executive produce and narrate this film. You know, would that be okay with you? And I can honestly tell you, I I because I, I like to try to be funny anyway. I took a beat for four or five seconds, and I, I said like I was really hoping for somebody better, but <laughs> yeah, Matt Damon, Matt Damon would be all right. Yeah, that'll do. Um, Hans. Hans Zimmer comes on board to do the score for the film. So yeah. like I've got three Academy Award winners for a film about me running across sand and riveting stuff. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I have, and this is the addict. And I say this all the time and addicts and people in recovery understand this. We are the best salesmen in history. If you want to sell something, hire someone who's in recovery because we know how to tell a freaking story. Yeah and make shit up and like that's i felt like that's what i had done and i'd suckered all of these people into believing in this idea and a year later i'm at the coast of senegal with two other runners one of them being the guy who actually blurted out this idea to begin with so i i taught him a lesson i made him go with me and you know and we're it's the day before we're going to start running five thousand miles across the sahara desert and you know, I'm looking around and thinking, I'm going to get all these people killed. <laughs> uh, you know, there is no way we're going to. And, and a week into this expedition, it's 140 degrees ground temperature every day. It's uh, Both my two teammates are on IV fluids. We've got vehicles that have blown up. Support people have quit. Hollywood's calling to say we're pulling the plug on this. And... And I think this is the important point. What I recognized in that moment, Pete, was that I was going about it all wrong. I, I felt so much pressure to get to the finish line, so to speak. You know, millions of dollars were invested. All these people were watching. And, like, uh, you know, I needed to get to Egypt. So I was so focused on the goal that I forgot the only miles that I could run were the ones that were right in front of me today, like right here, right now. 
just like sobriety. You know, you get so worried about being sober forever that you forget that you only have to be sober today. And slowly I began to make my way across the Sahara by focusing on, you know, I ran a marathon every morning. I'd take a break for lunch. I'd run a marathon in the afternoon. And that's how you saw it. I'd take a break at night. Yeah, and and by the time it was over, I'd run two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days without taking a day off. And, you know, we made it all the way to the other side of the Sahara. I mean, it's crazy to think back about. Uh, it's 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 insane, and if people want to watch the documentary, it's running the Sahara. You you come off like a bit of a prick, but I I think that's all the, the, the there's points in there. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> Who like says I'm not. Who <laughs> says I'm not. <laughs> well, and the reason I, I've heard you say that, but I mean, it's um yeah. the edit doesn't do you great justice. Uh, as this is your words, you know, and uh, it's kind of uh it's like if if you ever watch the real world, people know how that goes, right? And then yeah. You know, it's um, it, the, the people I, I think it's like who's clutching their pearls thinking anybody could be a dick on that. Anybody that's been in a competitive environment or is driven and do something. Hey, man, you're, you're going to get banged around a little bit. You know, there's going to be infighting and yeah. there's going to be a lot of emotion. That's how you, you get better and get things done. Well, there was a sober guy who came as a cameraman about two thirds of the way through that expedition. We had never met before. No way. He's watching. He's watching me, my behavior. I'm yelling at people. I'm throwing tantrums. I haven't had a meeting now for 90 days at this point, and I am running 50 miles every day, and I'm trying to keep this train moving. And I didn't know he was sober. We didn't know each other. He pulls me aside one day, or we're just sitting you know, near each other, and he says, hey, man, he, I don't remember what the keywords were, but he said a couple things that I knew he was sober, right? Yeah. He goes, and he said something so impactful. He's like, you you have so much compassion for the people of the Sahara, for your teammates. I mean, even if you're yelling at them, I think it was obvious that I, I really loved them. He says, you got all this compassion, but do you, have you ever given yourself a break? Have you, do you have any compassion for yourself? And I mean, I'm, I recognize that, and this isn't like a woe is me thing. I just recognized in that moment, thanks to him, that I, I was not willing to cut myself any slack whatsoever. And I felt so much pressure to make this thing successful that I was, I was ruining it for myself and for everybody else, you know, because I just couldn't, I just couldn't embrace the, the moment in a way. I think and, all, and I think that, all that alcoholics helped. can relate or sober people. I mean, sometimes you're just gripping the wheel too tight. Yep. And I wanted to control everything. I wanted to force everybody to enjoy the hell out of this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, I know we don't have much time left, but yeah. that, that, you know, the Matt Damon and I created something called H2O Africa out of that project. And, and I raised about $6 million over the, you know, six, six to nine months during the expedition and after. And today that organization is called water.org and it's the world's largest clean water nonprofit. And I only mention that because I'm no philanthropist. I certainly didn't have some brilliant idea. I wanted, I knew I wanted to do some good out of this run, but I encourage people listen to this. You know, you got, everybody's going to tell you, you can't do something, whatever that crazy idea is you want to do. They're going to say it has no value. Some people might support you, but more often than not, you know, they're going to suggest that you stick to your lane and, and you stay in the safe zone. And nothing good is ever found in the safe zone. <laughs> yeah, outside of the comfort zone is yeah, yeah. where the, where the growth so, happens. Yeah. Last thing for you, and I, we got to touch on this because it's a wrinkle and it's turned in, in my estimation to a positive wrinkle. In 2010, I mean, I don't know about positive, but you certainly learned from it and helped other people. You go to prison, and for yeah. people that don't know, I'll just say it because I've you know I've done my crack research. I've got some some journalism in me a little bit, but I mean, you got totally screwed, and I'll just leave it at that. Um, there's a New York Times article that people can read, but but you know what exactly happens to you? I mean, you go to prison for what sixteen months? Yeah. 
Well, this is my favorite moment on stage, Pete. When I'm doing a talk in front of a big group of people live, I've just taken them across the Sahara, and my <laughs> life is good. It's what right? a curveball, dude. Everything is good. Yeah. I'm no longer smoking crack, and my life is good. And I'm like, I come back to my condo, and I get arrested by six federal agents, and you know, I end up in jail and I go to trial. And, and I mean, in short for listeners, they can find all this info yeah. even on my website. But like, I mean, I, I'm the only person in the country to get charged with overstating my income on a home loan application yeah. from 2005. And ultimately I go to trial. I'm found not guilty of that, but I'm guilty of mail fraud on a technicality. And again, I'm not going to get into the details. Yeah. I go to prison. I'm sentenced to 21 months in federal prison in Beckley, West Virginia, in the federal system, you get, a, as I like to say, a 15% discount up front. So I was going to have to serve 18 months. 16 of those were in the prison. Two months were in a halfway house. And, you know, and this was a, this was a, everything was gone. People think cancel culture is like a, a new thing. The day I got arrested in 2010, the very next day, my sponsors all kicked me out. I was booted off the board of two nonprofits. When you say sponsors, uh, we're talking I, about like financial sponsors, like like money. Yeah, yeah sorry, yeah, yeah financial, yeah. like some That's of right. my you know socks and shoes and athletic gear and protein powder, whatever. They all dropped yeah. me. I don't, and I don't blame them. You know, it's the way the world is. I mean, forget about being found guilty. This was just the day after I was arrested. Yeah. And so my life, I'm as I like to say, I'm purged from my life. And on Valentine's Day, 2011, my kids, my teenage boys, dropped me off at the front gate of Beckley Federal Correctional Institute in Beckley, West Virginia. And it takes me a little while to find my footing, like literally. Uh, but I start running, same thing as I always do. And and the super short version is. There's 500 guys in this prison. And when I got there, there really wasn't a single, like what I'd call runner there. And I just, attraction rather than promotion. I started running every single day. People made fun of me. I do yoga out on the softball field by myself, <laughs> which I, I do not recommend if you ever go to federal prison. Yeah. But, um, you know, it, I took a lot of heat. and But the craziest thing happened. Three months into my stay, Guys started coming up to me and saying, hey, man, you know, in the, like, the cafeteria line, they're like, hey, man, you know, can you help me run? I've never run before, and, you know, I, I'd like to learn. And, and the only reason they did that is they actually saw my life getting better. And by the time I left Beckley, I had a running group of 50 guys, you know, running with me every single day. And 25 guys doing yoga on the softball field three days a week. <laughs> and you're and educating like, people on, on addiction. Uh, you're really yeah. carrying the message. So what's what's a couple things, one or two things, people don't know about going to prison that they should know? Um, you really learn how to, uh, how to, how to live economically sound uh, in your daily life because having credit in prison is a really bad idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's one. I'll also give a tip. Like this is the greatest tip I can give you. If you go to prison, become a vegan or a vegetarian because the thing that has the greatest value in prison is the chicken and the hamburgers. Oh. So like <laughs> me, if you don't eat those things, you can trade them for all kinds of other amazing, wonderful things that you can't, normally acquire in prison and, and I'm being cheap, but like, like running shoes and, you know, Gatorade and other things like that. Um, I, I guess I would also say my, this was minimum security. And on a serious note, 80% of the guys in there were there for nonviolent drug offenses. And it is the biggest waste of taxpayer money in the world. You know, even if you're a tough on crime person as a listener, if you're if you're a conservative tough on crime person, you are spending a fortune of tax dollars on keeping people in prison because they bought a bag of weed from the wrong guy. You know, if you're a violent offender, then you know I'm not saying that those folks, even if they were high when they did it, I would like to give them another chance too. But I also understand why that's a little tougher sell. But most of the people who are in prison those kind of prisons are, are, are there for some ridiculous thing that pays off lobbyists and politicians and keeps the prisons full and doesn't help society or humanity one bit. Yeah. And guess what you're doing right there. You're sure you just shared your experience. So, I mean, that's,
Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what yeah. you experienced there. So anything else before, before I, I, I let you run out of here, anything else? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the final thing I'll say is I, I talk freely about this stuff because I, I want to help erase the stigma of all this stuff. And I think you're the same totally of the same mindset, you know, because we think people care about our shit way more than they actually do. I don't, I never go into a talk that I don't talk about addiction and prison and the struggles that I've had. And I, you know, it's good times and bad times, but you know, we're self-centered human beings. That's what human beings really are. And, and people don't care nearly as much about this stuff. In fact, if you share your struggles with them, they're way more likely to be on your side and pull for you. And I think that's the important lesson that I, that I try to, Yes. And the, the, the final things I'll say is, look, you asked about my 30 year sober anniversary, which is coming up in July. And as you as you know, I will be running for yeah. 30 straight hours. Yeah, it's part of uh, uh, Ashley addiction I'm, treatment, right? The uh, exactly. yeah, movement for recovery. Yep. It sounds pretty awesome. And I'll, exactly. dro- I'll drop the link in the show notes. But yeah, what exactly does that mean to you to do that? Dude, I, I've been doing it for years. And so for years on my sober birthday, I will run for the same number of hours to equal the years I've been sober. And I started this around 10 years sober. Needless to say, it's getting harder. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. And I, I am, even though I try to project forward, somebody did ask me the other day, it's like, what happens when you're 70? Are you really going to go 40 hours? <laughs> and I, I basically am like, I hope so. Beats the I alternative. Be and yeah, hell yeah. yeah. And you know, and look, this is about movement. And I am a huge proponent of in treatment centers and in sobriety, there's too many people who are, you know, still smoking or or eating terrible foods and doing other bad habits, you know, even years into their sobriety. And this is we spend a lot of years beating our bodies up and I encourage movement. You know, not running. It doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be, you know, you can walk three days a week and do a little bit of yoga and stretching and greatly improve your life. So that's what this is about. Uh, we're going to drop, and we'll drop all your info in the show notes, man. Charlie Engel, I, I cannot thank you enough, dude. This was really awesome. Pete, this is the best conversation I've had in a very long time, and I thank you for, for having it. The time flew by. All right, cool. I'll send you a link to this when it comes out. I appreciate you, Charlie. Yeah, brother. Thank you so much, dude. Seriously. Okay. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza. And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast.